All right. Uh, I'm sure you all have read this chapter. I, I tried not to give anything away, but uh, these two witnesses will be martyred uh, by Antichrist himself. Uh, so let's take a look how that happens and the result. Uh, so in verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So first, it's very important that this does not happen until they have finished their testimony. Jesus, or God, has kept them until the halfway point in the tribulation because they had a testimony that they had to preach. Uh, remember this word for testimony or for witness is martyrial, which we get the word martyr from. It is the testimony uh, to something being truth, true, even to the point of being willing to die for it. That's exactly what they do. But even in their death, that is a testimony to their message. Uh, because their message is the one, is of the one who can rise or raise men from the grave. And that is what God will do with them. But this beast who comes out of the grave, again, we take a look at Revelation chapter 13, which is the specific revelation of this Antichrist. And we read, the dragon stood on sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So again, I hit 98 slides, so I wasn't able to include everything I wanted to. But uh, when we get to Revelation chapter 13, we're going to spend a lot of time in Daniel looking at the beasts, um, both the, uh, or the beasts from Daniel chapter 7. So if you want, go take a look at that and see the correlation here. Uh, but essentially what's happening here, this is at the midpoint or just after uh, the midpoint of the tribulation where we see the dragon giving his power to the beasts, this antichrist. Uh, when we get to chapter 13, we're going to go a little bit more in depth on this. But what is happening here with this beast is that he is being resurrected and indwelt by Satan himself. It is the man who will become the antichrist who makes war with the two witnesses and who slays them. But the Antichrist himself, before he becomes Antichrist proper, will also be dealt a fatal wound. Um, so we're going to look at that a little later. But when he is resurrected by the power of Satan, he will be indwelt by Satan himself and give authority. Um, so that second three and a half years is with a man who is being put in the position of Christ with Satan saying, here's my Christ, and with God saying, here's mine, and essentially the choice of who will you follow. Uh, and so there is the beast's great miracle in the next two verses in Revelation 13. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, 
and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So he will conquer the two witnesses who have been plaguing the earth, uh, preaching the message of the gospel, uh, much to the chagrin of unbelievers who are only experiencing the negative effects of their plagues. So that when this uh, war hero comes and kills these witnesses, putting an end to their plagues, they will worship him as God. Uh, but the beast's destiny uh, is the lake of fire. In Revelation 19, 20 to 21, when Jesus Christ returns as the victorious king, he will put away both the beast and the false prophet. That is the human antichrist and the human false prophet. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burned with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the Antichrist himself and his false prophet will be the only two occupants of the lake of fire for 1,000 years until the way dead are judged at the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, so he does have a very unique destiny that way. Uh, also, it says that the beast comes out from the abyss. The abyss is usually in conjunction with the abode of demons. Uh, so Luke 8, 30 to 31 says, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion from many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go back or to go away into the abyss. We saw also that from the abyss came the plague of uh, locust, which we identified again as a demonic swarm, uh, so that we see spiritually this beast coming out of the abyss um, after the man, the Antichrist, has been slain. Uh, what is likely happening is not a true resurrection, but a demonic infling of a human body, uh, which will be the Antichrist. It's also probably not unlike uh, the indwelling of the uh, bodies back in the days of Noah uh, with the Nephilim. Uh, it's unclear in scripture whether or not they were actually angels in angelic bodies or whether or not they were angels who took on the bodies of men uh, and bore demonic offspring. Again, that's one interpretation. It's not necessarily mine when I'm handling Genesis, but it's one that does come up uh, when dealing with the resurrection of the Antichrist, that uh, demonic indwelling is possible and uh, may even be able to mimic the resurrection of a body. Uh, all right, so the rise of the Antichrist, how does he gain power? Because again, when we were looking at the four horsemen, we saw that they weren't necessarily individual men, but rather political powers that were coming um, to move and change things around in the earth, likely to put everything in its final order that the Antichrist would need. Uh, but first, this, uh, this world government will come offering peace, and then it will quickly turn to war. 
uh, well, this is all going to be during a time where the Antichrist, uh, his specific identity may be unclear. Now, it might be clear from the beginning, but it won't be confirmed as the Antichrist until the midpoint when he's slain and resurrected. Uh, so we read here in Daniel 7, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, and kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half time. So what this is saying essentially is the first half of the tribulation period will likely be controlled by 10 different kings over 10 different kingdoms that will form a one world government. But one of those kings will become much larger in his stature among these kings, uh, subduing them, uh, it's kind of unclear what this word means, and uh, it's not Hebrew, it's uh, Akkadian, uh, it's Chaldean, uh, so it's kind of hard to identify exactly what this word means, but it may mean to kill. Uh, the Antichrist may be responsible for the death of three of these kings, um, and in their place he will rule, so that he will be... Uh, either a seventh king or an eighth king, if he is additional to these 10. Uh, but either way, he will take the reins entirely over the earth um, so that he will be the one king over the earth after the midpoint of the tribulation. Okay, so this word used to describe um, the city which these two martyrs will be killed in is... Uh, they call they use the word mystically, but that's kind of confusing, I think, because usually for mystical or uh, mystery, we use mysterion, which is the same word used to identify the church, which was a mystery, something unrevealed until God revealed it in the New Testament. This city isn't something unrevealed, um, so I would avoid this word mystical and go with either spiritual or figurative. Uh, because this Greek word is also different. It's pneumatikos, which comes from the Greek word pneumatos, which is spirit. Uh, so this is spiritual, not mystical, uh, Sodom and Egypt. So God's not revealing a new thing. Um, he's saying that in a spiritual, not a literal sense, these are Sodom or Egypt. And why does he identify it as Sodom or Egypt? Uh, Sodom probably has to do with the, uh, the sin that has been allowed into Jerusalem, where it becomes a hub, not of God's righteousness and glory, uh, but rather of syncretism with just about any sin that goes on in the world. They, they're like a sponge for it. Um, and then Egypt, probably because of the oppression of God's people in Egypt, and not necessarily by forces outside of Israel but by uh, Israel proper over God's people. Because remember, Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets. Uh, 
Jesus Christ identifies them as such. And even today, uh, Jerusalem or Israel, which has returned to its land in unbelief, does not allow the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so that in that way, it is spiritual Egypt because it has oppressed the people of God and not allowed them uh, the freedoms which God has allowed them even to the point of killing them. Uh, but here we read in Isaiah of uh, Jerusalem's leaders, which are compared to Sodom. The expression of their faces bears witness against them and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. The prophets are also uh, compared to Sodom. Uh, in Jeremiah 23, we read, Also among prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood, and they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from, the from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I am going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. From the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. And uh, Jerusalem is talked about as a sister of Sodom uh, or its two sisters, Samaria and Sodom, uh, which would indicate that it has some sort of relationship with them or similarity to them. So in Ezekiel 16, we read, Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters, and your younger sister who lives south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but... As if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. So this is just prior to uh, the, the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah, which has Jerusalem. Uh, uh, when... Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon uh, took this city captive, and he's saying that Jerusalem was even more corrupt than the northern kingdoms, and the northern kingdoms had been taken away in 722 BC in order to be a demonstration to Jerusalem and to Judah that they ought to shape up, essentially, but he said instead of learning from their captivity, you became more and more corrupt. Uh, uh, and, uh, so there's a really good illustration a little further on in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 23, where it talks about these two different kingdoms as two sisters. And it talks about the northern kingdom as the sister Ahalia and the lower kingdom as Ahaliba. Uh, so we read, yet she multiplied her harlotries remembering the days of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt. She lusted after their paramours whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosoms because of the breasts of your youth. Um, so it's essentially saying uh, since they were taken out of Egypt, they continued in their corruption so that their corruption reached maturity 
rather than their own spirituality. Now this Tohala and Ohaliba are two Hebrew words uh, that again are transliterated, but in this case, the transliteration is necessary because uh, it's personified as if these are the names of these two sisters. Uh, he's building a word picture, but it helps to break these words apart and see what they mean. Uh, Ohala is uh, literally a tent or her tent. Um, it probably has to mean a worshiper in a tent or a tent shrine. Um, and this uh, would correlate with the Northern Kingdom, which didn't have a temple. Um, and one of their sins we saw a couple of weeks back when looking at um, Ephraim was the introduction of, of foreign gods and foreign worship styles um, so that they were worshiping in a way not sanctioned by God and not even worshiping God, but taking on idols. Uh, so that their particular sin was the worshiping in tent shrines of other gods. But Ohaliba uh, means my tent is in her, which is probably um, indicating the temple uh, because this is God's tent. So that they weren't corrupting themselves by going outward uh, and corrupting themselves with other gods, but rather they were corrupting uh, the very temple of God because this was his holy city. This was Jerusalem. So that their, uh, their sins is even more abhorrent uh, because of the righteousness sitting within it. And yet they strayed still. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So we see here Christ's work in Jerusalem. Uh, so remember, Jerusalem is where uh, Jesus Christ was crucified. But we read... We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So here's one of the clearest passages that puts it in one simple verse and not just in context that Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem so that we can identify these two prophets, not as dying somewhere um, south of Israel in uh, the undiscovered ruins of Sodom or north in Samaria, uh, but or, or further south yet in Egypt, but rather uh, right in the city of Jerusalem, these two Witnesses will preach, will prophesy, and also be martyred. And this just adds to the blood guilt of Jerusalem. Uh, a lot of this uh, judgment coming in the last three and a half years will come on the city of Jerusalem, not just its inhabitants. But in Matthew 23, 34 to 36, uh, we read, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come, up, come upon this generation. Now the murder of Zechariah, uh, was probably something that was contemporary to the time of Jesus Christ. It's not reported elsewhere in scripture. So that he's essentially, again, used here a merism 
where he's going from the very first murder to the very to the most recent murder at the time he had made this statement. This murder of Zechariah is not recorded for us elsewhere in scripture, but there's enough record here for us to get a good understanding of what was going on. Um, Zechariah was killed, and he wasn't just killed anywhere, but he was killed on the Temple Mount between the temple and the altar. Uh, there could be no greater uh, blasphemy of the very purpose of this temple, uh, which was to, uh, to give them a reminder of the need of death to cover their sins, yet they are murdering right next to the means of uh, atonement for, that, for their sins. Uh, yeah, so it's it's showing the depth of depravity, but also that all of these murders, God's not forgetting any of them, uh, but that all of it is coming on Jerusalem uh, for their murder, likely of these witnesses in the end times. Well, Jesus continues in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, so desecration then of these uh, bodies. Those from the peoples and the tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb, adding insult to injury here. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those on the earth. <clears throat> So the law makes it very clear, uh, God's view of death and dead bodies. Uh, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged, on, who is, hanged is accursed of God. So that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So the leaving of these bodies in the uh, city of Jerusalem for three and a half days is building up the defilement of the land that God has given them. And uh, at the same time, the clock is ticking down towards the very last day. Uh, so we see even until the end, uh, they are still committing these same atrocities in their land. Uh, this is also spoken about in the Psalms, where we read, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, which indicates that they were not buried. The flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth, they have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem. There was no one to bury them. So obviously we see that this is abhorrent to God, uh, but also should be to any righteous man. And we see that there is 
there, there was a time in the land of Israel where this was abhorrent to people, and that would have been at the time of David, uh, where Saul was killed by the Philistines, and the Philistines left his body out, and uh, Israel took care of it, but this was the most righteous point in all of Israel's history. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons on the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Sha'an. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Sha'an. And they came to Jabesh and, and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So in this scenario, we have the righteous men of Jabesh Gilead and we have the unrighteous Philistines. But unfortunately, at the very last period in Jerusalem's history, uh, on this earth, we see them acting much more like the Philistines. Uh, in fact, there is no correlation to be drawn between them and anything righteous at all. Uh, but they will be uh, thumbing their nose at God. Uh, oops. This is a repeat. So, uh, also of interest, the fact that this will be witnessed by every tribe, tongue, and nation, which until now we've uh, we've noted everywhere in Revelation that this indicates all peoples all around the world. Uh, up until about a hundred years ago, commentators tend to I guess not even see this verse in there uh, or just choose not to deal with it about how everyone on earth would be able to witness this happen. Uh, this is uh, actually, I grabbed this screenshot today. Um, I was able to watch the Temple Mount live on Skyline webcams, but I'm realizing this is actually probably even outdated technology already uh, because, I mean, we have. Facebook and we have uh, Instagram. I watched the Notre Dame burn down on live TV. Uh, I watched the shooting down in Las Vegas a couple years ago. It popped up on my Facebook while it was happening. Uh, I think it'd be very similar uh, if technology doesn't continue to advance until the point of this, um, that it would be something like Facebook Live and uh, Instagram Live that brings this to people all around the world so that everyone is able to watch this happen live. And then for three and a half days are able to turn in and tune in and watch the festivities, uh, celebrate together with the entire evil world who celebrates the death of the prophets of God. <clears throat> but God will deliver these two prophets. Uh, we read uh, in the remainder of this section, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life 
from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now again, notice how they were resurrected and how they were taken up into heaven. They were not taken up in the blink of an eye like Enoch or like the church, but rather they were taken up in a cloud as their enemies watched. This is much more like Elijah. It's much more like Jesus Christ's own resurrection, uh, so that it is a demonstration for all those around to watch this happen and see that God is the God of the whole earth, that he is the creator and the sustainer of all things, and he has the power over death. This cloud that they're being taken up in is likely not just any cloud, but the Shekinah glory itself. And uh, they come up at the behest of God, who says, come up here, just like Christ said to Lazarus, uh, come out. This breath of life uh, is similar to the breath of life given to man prior to the fall, where God gives Adam the breath of life. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is probably indicating, although not necessarily, that their resurrection to life on earth was a resurrection to their glorified bodies, just as Jesus Christ had been. Uh, so that this breath of life was not just resuscitation as Lazarus had been, rather a resurrection to their glorified bodies, and they were carried off into heaven at that time. Uh, this is not the only case of resurrections in Jerusalem. In Matthew 27, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, you'll remember, uh, read this a couple months ago. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection... They entered the holy city and appeared to many. So after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these bodies which sprung to life uh, because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, they had come back to life or from falling asleep were raised. Uh, this resurrection also came in conjunction with an earthquake in Christ's day. Now after the Sabbath, is be, as it began to draw toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Now despite the indication that there was an earthquake, there is no... Uh, indication that anyone died because of this earthquake uh, in Jesus' day. But the earthquake coming after the resurrection of the two witnesses will come with the death of 7,000 men in Jerusalem. And their population is likely to be 
dwindled anyways, um, because at the midpoint of the tribulation, half of the population of Earth will have died uh, just from plagues, just from the seven seals and the six trumpets that have happened to this point. So 7,000 would be quite substantial. Uh, we're sitting here on Vashon Island, and I think there's only about 14,000 people, so it would be half the population of Vashon Island uh, that would die. Uh, from that one earthquake. Uh, right, so the resurrection of Jesus Christ we see is in its own order, but at what point in the order come these two resurrections of the two witnesses? In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, we read, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So this goes all the way from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the completion of the millennial kingdom, the judgment of the wicked dead, and the abolishing of death. So we don't get a very detailed order in that passage, but we can glean from elsewhere in scripture exactly how these resurrections will be ordered and at what point in the program of resurrection these two witnesses come. So first we have Christ and the first fruits offering. These happen in close conjunction with one another. We saw in Matthew 27 and 28, both of these resurrections occurred. And we see they came out of their tombs at the point that Jesus Christ himself was resurrected. This is the first fruits offering to show that the resurrection will be bountiful, just like the uh, grain offering of first fruits showed how bountiful the crop that was coming would be. Uh, so we can assume that there were many who rose from their graves at that point, not just a few. Uh, some have even suggested that it was all of the Old Testament saints. I think we discussed that when we looked at resurrection specifically. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think it was just uh, a gathering of those uh, probably who had died during the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, that would be my best guess. Uh, again, no scripture pointing to that. It's just a guess. Uh, but we also have the dead in Christ and the alive in Christ. Um, so this would be anyone from the church age because they are part of a different program than the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. Uh, so these will be resurrected uh, if they have died or taken alive, in which case they will not be resurrected, but rather translated uh, as Enoch was. At that point, we have here these two witnesses in the middle of the uh, tribulation period, and they, they will be resurrected right at the midpoint, um, probably as close to the day as we would care to identify. Uh, these two witnesses will be killed and then resurrected three and a half days later. The Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs will be resurrected at some point 
at the end of those 1,335 days that we saw from Daniel. And the wicked dead, who will be resurrected not to life, but to death, and this is indicated as the second death in Revelation 20. So the, the first six stages of resurrection is the first resurrection, and then the seventh is the second resurrection. And that's after the millennial kingdom, when, uh, when all mortals have had that opportunity to choose Christ or to choose Satan at the last uprising of Satan at the end of the millennial kingdom then the wicked dead will be judged and cast into the lake of fire together with the, the false prophet and the antichrist. And the ascension of Christ, as I mentioned a little earlier, was similar to the ascension of these two prophets and also the ascension of Elijah. So in Acts 1, we read, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight. So these witnesses will not be raptured as the church or as Enoch, but they will be taken up in a cloud like Jesus Christ or like Elijah were. Uh, the rapture happens instantaneously in, a, in the blink of an eye. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, we read, For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. I believe in Titus 3.5, it identifies it as in a blink of an eye uh, that will happen. These two martyrs, uh, they will be martyred in Jerusalem, just like many of the prophets throughout history. The difference is they will be killed by the Antichrist himself and not by the Jewish people. However, the Jews will celebrate this death of the prophet, just as they've celebrated the death of prophets before. Uh, and it will be the entire world joining in on this celebration. Uh, but the Lord will resurrect them, and in that resurrection will confirm his power over death to all of those watching. Uh, so that when they see this happen, they will have to admit that it is by the power of the Lord. But although they will recognize his power, many of them will still not turn to him in faith. So they will recognize that it is God, but at that point they will still choose not to uh, follow him. Mm -hmm.